$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus. Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, I'll be covering the case of Logan Willis in Harrelson County, Georgia. Let's get right to it. In 2018, Logan Willis was 19 years old. He was your average down-home Georgia country boy who enjoyed being outdoors and anything that came with four wheels. He was funny, kind, and always willing to help someone out. So when he met the woman who would become his girlfriend, we're going to call her Kay. That's not her actual name, and as we go through Logan's case, I'll have to use nicknames since at this time, no one has been charged or officially considered a suspect. In fact, Logan's official manner of death is recorded as suicide. However, by the time we reach the end of this episode, you'll understand why that determination is in question. Anyhow, Logan began dating Kay. And Kay, well, she already had two kids of her own that were not biologically Logan's. That didn't seem to bother Logan, though. According to his dad, he was the goofy uncle who all the kids were drawn to. You know, the one who throws you up in the air too high and allows you to do questionable things that a parent would never? That was Logan. So they started dating and Logan treated her kids as if they were his own. But things weren't all rainbows and sunshine. Kay and Logan's relationship was rocky. There were accusations of infidelity on Kay's part and the two frequently argued. Logan's family didn't trust her, and believe me, they had their reasons. Things between Logan's biological family and Kay went from bad to worse when they found out Kay was pregnant. And while Kay may have wanted the baby to be Logan's since he was a stand-up guy, according to Logan's father, there was a question of whether or not the baby was actually his. As time went on and the due date got closer, Logan revealed to his dad that he wasn't sure he was going to hang around if the child wasn't his. I mean, he was 19 years old. It's a hell of a lot of responsibility to take on not one, not two, but three children that don't belong to you at that age. 
especially in a relationship that was already rocky. This was something Logan had spoke to his dad about at a cookout about a week prior to his death as they watched the Alabama-Georgia football game. Logan asked his dad if he thought he needed a paternity test. His dad, Charlie, advised to get one if he thought he needed it, and Logan confided in him that if the child wasn't his, he thought it would be best to leave. At the time, Logan was working for a man we're going to call Jim. Now, Jim and his family had become like a second family to Logan. When Logan was a young teen, he had spent a lot of time with Jim and his family, staying over at their house frequently, and at one point in 2014, they had actually taken legal guardianship of Logan. But after less than a year, at Logan's request, that guardianship was terminated, and Logan was back in the custody of his biological mom. That didn't mean Jim and his family were out of his life, though, and he still spent time with them. You see, Logan was best friends with Jim's son. We'll call him CL. The pair had been thick as thieves, and it was more like they were brothers than friends. However, in the months leading up to Logan's death, they were kind of feuding with each other like brothers sometimes do. One of the points of contention was that CL was dating Logan's sister and they two were expecting a child together. Logan didn't seem to be thrilled about the relationship, and it had caused quite a rift not only between CL and Logan, but also Logan and his sister. In late August of 2018, Logan rented a mobile home in Bremen, Georgia, off Waterworks Road. It was a small, single-wide, and a mobile home park, with other trailers to the front, back, and one to the side. Logan lived there with Kay, her kids, and one of her friends we're going to call Manny. Manny was around to help care for the kids and help Kay with whatever she needed. With Kay's due date approaching, Logan knew they were going to need a place of their own, so he worked hard to make it happen, and he did. But he and Kay still had their issues. They were young, and the uncertainty of the child's paternity, as you can imagine, was a huge point of friction for the couple. This is evident from text messages recovered from Kay's phone. On Tuesday, September 11, 2018, the two began to argue over text, both of them questioning whether or not they should continue in their relationship together. Logan questioned whether the child Kay was carrying actually belonged to him, and they continued to send messages throughout the following day on Wednesday. Logan went to work that day, but the messages continued. He accused Kay of cheating again, which she denied, and they were still going back and forth about where to go from that point forward. When Logan returned to the trailer that evening, the power had been cut off. You see, he was on a pay-as-you-go plan with the electric company and it was pretty straightforward. You pay, you use the electricity you paid for, and when your account is out of funds, the electric is cut off. You go down and make a payment, and it's back on. Logan went down and made a payment after work, but it was later in the afternoon, so the power wouldn't be turned back on until the following day. Logan had gotten some lunch meat and bread and ice and planned to stay at the trailer that night. His dad, Charlie, was over at the house, so it was Charlie, Logan, Kay, and Manny. Charlie asked Logan about the possibility of borrowing a generator so he wouldn't be without power. When Logan responded, what is a generator? 
He laughed in dad and gave him a little shit for not knowing what a generator was. Charlie told his son that he loved him and he'd see him soon and then he headed out. What he couldn't have known at the time was that was the last exchange he would ever have with his son. It was around 6 p.m. on that Wednesday, September 12th. Before Charlie left, he had heard Kay say she was going to her mom's house and Manny was going with her. And at some point, they all did leave the trailer. Around 8 p.m., according to reports, Logan placed a call to CL's mother, stating the baby wasn't his and that he was going to kill himself. She claimed that he was extremely upset, but no one did anything about it. And further, the validity of this call will come into question in just a few moments. Anyhow, Kay and Logan continued texting back and forth into the night. It was more of the same argument about where their relationship was headed. Logan's last text message was sent somewhere between the late night of September 12th and the early morning hours of September 13th. I'd love to be able to tell you exactly when that message was sent, but according to Kay, her phone died and she didn't receive that message until after 8 p.m. on the 13th and I don't have access to the messages on Logan's phone. The night of September 12th passed. The following morning, Logan was scheduled to be at work, but he didn't show. Not only did he not show, but he didn't call either, which was odd because Jim had a big job that day and needed Logan to work, and Logan was aware of that. But it wasn't too odd because Logan had ditched work on multiple occasions before for whatever reason. And according to Charlie, that generally wouldn't have sparked a huge concern. But on this particular day, it did. So much so that according to CL's statements and statements made by his family, he went to go check on Logan, and he brought along another worker for the ride. Seems a little strange that in the middle of a big job, not one, but two workers would be pulled from the job site to go check on Logan, especially considering how well CL knew him but maybe he needed the company. According to statements given by the other worker, they went to the front door first, but it was locked. So they began walking to the back of the trailer. This other guy was walking a few steps ahead of CL. He claimed he saw Logan's body first as they were walking around the side and said to CL, hey, maybe you shouldn't walk back there, but it was too late. CL had seen Logan's body. Logan had seemingly hung himself from the back porch railing. CL looked up at the other worker and said, He's fucking dead, dude. The other guy responded, Yep. And they both began walking back towards the front of the trailer. CL then stated, Maybe I should call dad. And that's exactly what he did. For nearly 45 minutes, yes, 45 CL remained on the phone giving his father and sister directions to Logan's house. No 911 call was made and instead CL directed his father to the scene. While CL claimed he was so distraught he didn't think of calling for actual help for his best friend, you know, like paramedics, the police, someone who wasn't 45 minutes away, and instead decided to be a real-time navigation device for his father, he did take the time to dispose of a dead deer on the front porch. A dead deer, you ask? Yes, a dead deer. 
a deer that for some reason needed to be removed from the scene before his father and law enforcement arrived. Logan was dead, still hanging from the back porch, and CL was concerned with a deer carcass. We'll get there in due time too, I promise. Back at the scene, it's unclear whether the deer was placed in the back of the truck and left to be disposed of later, or if CL actually left the scene and got rid of it right then. But what we do know is that it was gone when his father arrived at the house. At that time, according to CL's family, CL was in the fetal position on the ground outside the trailer hysterical. After his father and sister made it to the house, they both placed 911 calls stating that Logan had committed suicide. Harrelson County EMS as well as the Sheriff's Department arrived, and it was apparent that it was too late. Logan was deceased. The scene was documented. Logan was found behind the trailer hanging from the porch railing. His phone was found right next to him, face down on the floor planks of the porch. On the porch railing above him was a note which read, I don't want anyone crying. I'm in a better place now. I love you all and thanks for the ones who was truly there. The letter continued about the unborn child. The name Kay had picked out for the baby was used. However, I'll be referring to the baby as B. It continued, And B, I'm sorry I spent all this time thinking you were mine. I would have loved you. It was written on the back of a sonogram picture of the child Kay was carrying, and the note had been wrapped with a power cord from an electric razor and secured to the railing. The Sharpie marker used to write it was also lying on the railing next to the note, as well as a pack of cigarettes and a lighter. The cigarettes were half on and half off the railing, just kind of teetering there. The scene was documented, but the investigation was minimal at best. Any good officer or investigator will tell you that they are trained to treat every death scene like they're working a homicide until proven otherwise. But it doesn't appear that's what happened here. The call came in as a suicide and from the looks of the scene with the note, the marker used to write the note, and Logan's phone placed on the porch next to him, it was assumed that this was a suicide. On the surface, it's easy to make that assumption. Logan was upset and arguing with his girlfriend. There was no power at the house and there was a note. One could assume that Logan was completely devastated, learning that this child wasn't his, frustrated that the power was out, and feeling hopeless. But we all know what happens when you assume. If you just glanced over the surface, that's where this story would end. A tragic tale of a 19-year-old boy who took his own life in a moment of desperation. Tragic, absolutely but not a story that would typically be told on a true crime podcast. And had it not been for Logan's father, Charlie, it likely never would have been. But Charlie felt something was off the moment he learned of his son's death. He was at a local grocery store when someone he knew came up to him to offer condolences, but he hadn't even been told that his son was gone. No one had the decency to tell this man his son was gone. Now, Charlie will be the first to tell you that at points in his life, he has struggled with addiction and made plenty of mistakes. But he loved his kids. And throughout his struggles, he remained in contact with Logan. 
He loves his son. There's no doubt about that. He just couldn't wrap his head around the news. He had just been with Logan. How could this have happened? But there wouldn't be time to process it just yet. There were funeral arrangements to be made and everything that comes with the unexpected death of a loved one. Those arrangements were made and made rather quickly. Logan would be cremated and CL's family would take care of everything. That didn't sit right with Charlie either. Logan was his son, but what could he do? He was being pushed out and CL's family was taking over. This was completely evident at the services for Logan. Walking into the funeral home, he sensed that his presence wasn't welcome. He could feel the glares and stares. It was odd to say the very least. Was there a reason he was being kept at a distance? Weeks passed and Logan's sister married CL. They eventually had their child and it seemed everyone was moving on. But Charlie couldn't shake this nagging feeling that something was wrong. The story was being told that Logan found out that very night of his death that this child Kay was carrying wasn't his. But that didn't seem right because Charlie knew Logan had serious doubts all along. They had talked about it. This wasn't groundbreaking, earth-shattering news, so why was everyone acting like it was? And why did it take 45 minutes for a 911 call to be placed? Why was no one else asking these questions? As time continued to pass, Charlie had more questions than answers. And then there was an article published in West Georgia Woman magazine in September of 2020 about suicide featuring CL's family to include his mother, sisters, and Logan's biological sister. And the details in that article, well, they just weren't accurate. There were accusations about Logan wrecking his truck in 2017 and making statements that he was going to kill himself, something that I nor anyone else who has reviewed this case can validate. His sister also stated that as his relationship with Kay progressed, Logan began drinking heavily and using pills to deal with his pain. But the toxicology results determined that was a lie. Logan's blood alcohol was a 0.01, which just so happens to be the lowest measurable alcohol level. It was almost undetectable and was likely due to chemicals released by the body during the decomposition process. There was a trace amount of methamphetamine found in his system, but it was a trace amount. And there are many both over-the-counter and prescribed medications that can lead to a false positive. Back at the trailer, there was zero evidence of drug use. No drugs, no pills, no paraphernalia, zero, zip, zilch, nada. And further, how would she know? Because in the same article, she states that she hadn't even spoken to Logan in the four months prior to his death. Accusations were also made that his father, Charlie, was trying to sell Jim a stolen generator on the day he died. The article stated, My dad went to see Logan the day before he died. He wanted to use Jim's company gas card for gas and wanted Logan to sell Jim a stolen generator. That was quite the remix of the facts. Charlie had asked Logan if he knew what a generator was and he didn't. Y'all remember that, right? 
And if Charlie had a generator, don't you think he would have offered it to Logan for the night so he wasn't without power? Come on now. The article continues. According to CL's mother, and I'm quoting directly, on Wednesday, Logan and his girlfriend argued through text most of the day. He told the young woman repeatedly that he was going to kill her than himself. CL's mother says his girlfriend never reached out to anyone for help and she didn't contact anyone in Logan's family. They even went as far as to quote a text Kay reportedly shared with the family that stated, If you break my heart one more time, I'll kill you and then I'll kill myself. Damning evidence, isn't it? Except it doesn't exist. There isn't a single text message sent to Kay that day that stated anything along the lines of Logan harming her or himself. Breaking up? Yes. Killing her and himself? Frankly, that's bullshit. Photos of her texts were documented by the Harrelson County Sheriff's Office, and those text messages are not there. And what about that supposed phone call at 8 p.m. on September 12th? The one I said would get called into question? Because according to this magazine spread, no one besides Kay New Logan was expressing suicidal thoughts. Had that call ever actually happened? It's one of the strangest articles I've ever read, knowing the actual facts about Logan's case. It's presented as a glossy anti-suicide campaign titled The Women He Left Behind, urging people to seek help, all while low-key disparaging Logan, accusing him of making violent statements and using drugs. All things contradictory to the actual evidence, like the documented text messages or the medical examiner's report and the scene. What were they really trying to accomplish here? Charlie had felt all along that Logan's death needed a closer look, and now it was time. So he reached out to a man you might be familiar with if you've been following the podcast for a while. And that is the one and only private investigator, Mr. Lee Wilson of Southeast Legal Investigation Services. The same Lee Wilson who assisted the Embert family in getting justice for Jake Embert after his death was initially ruled a suicide. If you don't know Jake's story, after we're done today, you can skip back to episode number 12. It's an incredible story and I'll forever be a fan of the Embert family and their tenacity in getting justice for Jake. Well, Charlie Willis hired private investigator Wilson to take a look into Logan's death. Investigator Wilson has decades of experience. He's a former law enforcement officer and has worked the last 12 years in the private sector. It's always an honor to have the opportunity to work alongside Lee. Not only is he a meticulous investigator, but also one of the most humble and genuine humans you could ever hope to meet. I feel like I should probably pause here to tell y'all that this episode is not sponsored by Southeast Legal. But we love a good, honest investigator around here, and that's what Lee Wilson is. As with every other case, he let Charlie Willis know that his job was to get to the truth, whatever that was. There was a huge possibility that he would land on the conclusion everyone else seemed to, that Logan had taken his own life. So Investigator Wilson got to work. He obtained all the files from Logan's case and began to review them. 
This review left him with questions. Several of them. Let's start with the scene. Now is probably a good time to explain the setup of the trailer itself. It was a single-wide mobile home with porches built both on the front and back. The back porch where Logan was found was raised slightly, almost flush with the trailer itself, but had no independent entry point, meaning there were no stairs down into the small backyard and the railing completely surrounded the porch. Every piece of evidence used to determine that this had been a suicide was found right there on that porch railing, all perfectly lined up. It was so neatly placed. Now Logan? He was not a particularly neat and tidy guy. The house was in complete disarray. Again, he's 19 years old. If you've seen a teenage boy's room, imagine that but an entire house. And his truck was the same way. But there on the railing, everything is neatly placed, lined up perfectly with the note secured. Again, there was no power at the house, no light poles in the backyard, but yet it appears the note was written right there on the railing in the dark. Logan would have had to have held a light, the marker, and steadied the slippery ultrasound paper as he wrote. On the porch beneath the railing was a cut piece of the rope, which wasn't actually a rope. It was mule tape. According to the manufacturer, mule tape is a lubricated polyester tape used to install various types of cable, which tracks with Jim's family business. It's something that Logan and Jim's family would have had easy access to. This particular strand of mule tape is designed to hold up to 1,800 pounds and would require a knife to cut. And since it's made to hold 1,800 pounds, there is little to no give or stretch in the tape. It's actually designed to stretch as little as possible and to hold that immense weight. In Logan's case, the mule tape used to hang his body was tied in two pretty extensive knots. This wasn't just a simple slipknot situation. One end of the mule tape was secured to the porch. It was knotted and looped back around the railing, kind of resembling a trucker's knot but slightly different since it had been looped back around the porch railing. The end that was looped and tied around Logan's neck was more of a slipknot, but the mule tape had been freshly cut on the end. The remnants of that cut were what was found lying on the porch, but there was no knife in the immediate vicinity or on Logan. The only knife located on the scene was found in the floorboard of Logan's truck. If Logan had tied that knot and cut that mule tape would he have gone through all the trouble of walking through the house out the front door to his truck in the front yard and toss the knife in the floorboard of his truck all by cell phone light? Why? And further, from the photos, it doesn't appear that the knife found in the truck had been recently moved or placed there. It was lying there in the floorboard along with some miscellaneous power cords, an empty Mountain Dew bottle, and other random car trash like you would expect to find in the floorboard of a boy's truck, especially a boy who frequently would have needed it for work. And why would he have cut the mule tape in the first place? This cut in the ligature left zero room for error, with a ligature that is literally designed not to stretch. This would have made it extremely difficult for Logan to do what would have had to have happened next if you're going with the suicide theory because there was a white five-gallon bucket found at Logan's feet. 
it appears the bucket contained trash and had been flipped upside down. The location of the bucket suggests that Logan had used it to stand on. He would have had to have tied the knot on the porch first and then stood on the bucket as he tied the mule tape around his neck and from the length of the mule tape again there would have been no room for error. And again, where is the knife? It should have been found in close proximity to his body, but it wasn't. How was that even possible? And why was the bucket still sitting there upside down but upright, both the trash and bucket seemingly undisturbed? If he had stepped off of an empty five-gallon bucket, you would expect that the weight and force of his body would have knocked the bucket over or at the very least disturb the trash and dirt under his feet. But the disturbance at Logan's feet is minimal, and the socks he was wearing appear to be rather clean. You would also expect with how tight the ligature was that the force would have knocked over the cigarettes and lighter, teetering on the very railing the tape was tied to. The note was secured, but the marker wasn't. With that type of force, wouldn't it have been knocked down? or the cell phone over Logan's right shoulder neatly and squarely placed on the porch floor. It was positioned face down, perfectly lined up with the boards of the porch, charging port still open. The scene was almost too perfect, like it had been staged. And that brings me to the next questionable finding. The tips of Logan's feet are touching the ground. It appears that he could have stood up if he wanted to. While it is entirely possible for someone to have the willpower to bend their legs and hold them up, there is still going to be some level of involuntary movements as the body's natural instinct to survive kicks in. If his feet could touch, again you would expect to see some evidence of disturbance at the primary scene, but it's just not there. The lack of disturbance coupled with the injuries to Logan's body doesn't line up either. While a full autopsy was never done, the medical examiner did perform an external exam, which only led to more questions. Logan sustained post-mortem injuries to his back. These injuries were documented and photographed by the officers on scene as well as the medical examiner. While you would expect to see some post-mortem wounding to Logan's upper back and neck, since the floor of the wooden deck extended a couple of inches beyond the railing that the ligature was tied to, there are multiple postmortem abrasions extending far beyond where Logan's body was making contact with the edge of the porch when he was found. You can see the actual impression the wood flooring made on his upper back. But what has never been explained to this very day is why if Logan killed himself, these injuries extended far below where his body was making contact with the porch, all the way down to his lower back. Once again, the ligature used doesn't stretch, especially not with Logan's small frame. He only weighed roughly 135 pounds. The tape was so tight to the porch, there wasn't room for movement. So how had these injuries gotten there? One of these abrasions wraps around to the right side of his lower chest. Another abrasion is documented by the medical examiner on the central, upper part of his chest. There is nothing that could have made contact with the front of Logan's body after he was deceased. So how had he sustained any postmortem wound to the front of his body? 
And further, the medical examiner also noted a three-fourth by half-inch bruise on the left side of his chest. This injury would have been sustained just prior to Logan's death. What was that from? And last, but certainly not least, there is roughly a one-inch unexplained blood stain on the top of Logan's chest. The origin of the blood is completely unknown, and it appears to be more of a transfer-type blood stain. Again, there has been no explanation as to how that blood got there. It's just there with no injury to explain it. There is no reason that I, nor Investigator Wilson, or anyone else for that matter, can find to explain these injuries. Investigator Wilson also discovered possible unexplained injuries on Logan's best friend CL in photos taken at the scene by the Harrelson County Sheriff's Office. It's a hell of a find, because no intentional photographs were taken, but CL was captured in a photo taken of Logan's truck. In the reflection of the window, CL can be seen with what looks like an injury to his eye and the left side of his neck, almost as if he had been in an altercation, one that certainly isn't documented in any of the reports. Speaking of reports, according to the medical examiner's report, the last person to speak with Logan was CL's mother at 8 p.m. on September 12th. The report states his mother, identified in the sheriff's office report not as Logan's actual biological mother, but CL's mother, spoke to the decedent Logan Willis over the phone at that time. His mother stated the decedent was extremely upset after finding out that his girlfriend was pregnant by another man. It went on to say the mother stated while she and the decedent were speaking on the phone, the decedent stated he was going to kill himself. Again, this was a far different story than this woman had told West Georgia Women's Magazine. Remember, she claimed she was unaware Logan was suicidal until she was provided those text messages by Kate that don't exist. So which of these stories is true? Because it cannot be both. Let's go back to the scene and talk about the sandwich. In the bathroom of the trailer, there was a single sandwich sitting on a plate on the counter right next to the electric razor from which the cord had been taken and used to tie down the note. Now it was evident that at one time there were likely two sandwiches on that plate, from the position and the remaining sandwich and something else we'll get into in just a minute. In the bedroom, across from the bathroom, the bread and deli meat Logan had used to make that sandwich was still in the grocery bags lying on the bed. When Logan's body had been found, there was mustard on the corner of his mouth, his chest, and a large drip on the shorts he was wearing, suggesting he was sitting down eating a sandwich just prior to his death. He had eaten the first sandwich, but that second one was still sitting there on that plate. Had he decided to take his own life in the middle of eating the food he had taken the time to prepare? Or... Had he been in the middle of eating his first sandwich and been interrupted by something or someone? The investigation would reveal that Logan did have a visitor that night, his best friend CL. And here is where that deer comes into play. In an eight-line statement given to police, CL wrote, I hit a deer last night, tried to call him to help me skin the deer, but he didn't answer. So I came over here, knocked on the doors, and nobody answered. 
So I looked in all the windows and didn't see nobody, so I left. Then I came over here to get him for work, and that's when I walked around to find him hanging. There's no mention of the fact that he had left that deer on the front porch the night before, or the fact that the deer had been removed prior to law enforcement's arrival. Not only did he not mention leaving the deer, but if he had walked around and peered in all the windows, he would have been able to clearly see Logan's body on the back porch that night. According to the incident report, CL stated that that morning he was walking around the trailer to the back porch to see if Logan was out back smoking a cigarette when he had found his body. Wouldn't he have done the same the night before and again found Logan? And why ditch the deer? This is Georgia. Ain't nobody gonna care about roadkill. When he did find Logan, why hadn't a 911 call been made? Why had they waited until his father and sister showed up? Being distraught is one thing, but being so distraught for 45 minutes that not one of the four adults with cell phones that are aware of what is happening thinks maybe we should call 911 is another. This incident report also refers to CL's mother as Logan's mother, and it appears Jim and his family may have led the original investigators to believe that they were Logan's actual family even though that guardianship had been terminated at Logan's request years earlier. This gave them access to Logan's personal belongings and information about the investigation. The more Investigator Wilson looked into Logan's case, the more things weren't adding up, so he started asking questions. And those questions were clearly unwanted. Not only were Logan's sister, CL, and his family uncooperative, they were downright hostile to both Charlie and Investigator Wilson. That brings us to a comment that was made by Logan's sister, who, remember, is married to CL at this point. When Charlie spoke to his daughter, asking her to sit down with Investigator Wilson to help clarify the days and weeks leading up to Logan's death, she refused and at one point stated, the handwriting was Logan's and everything. I went to the loan company and got proof. It's not that anybody has anything to hide. It's just like, fuck, everybody keeps bringing it up. That was an odd thing to mention because no one up to this point had questioned the validity of the note. It was something private investigator Wilson had serious questions about, but he had not revealed that quite yet. The reason Investigator Wilson had questions? When compared to known samples of Logan's handwriting, it didn't appear to match. Investigator Wilson repeatedly asked CL and others to come in and talk, but they continued to refuse. But why? They supposedly loved Logan as their own. If a credentialed investigator such as Mr. Wilson has doubts that a boy you claim to love as your own son had taken his life, wouldn't you cooperate? Wouldn't you want that person to be held accountable? Wouldn't you want the truth? Investigator Wilson completed his investigation and thoroughly believed that someone else was involved in Logan's death. So he presented his findings to investigator Jason Bowman and eventually the Harrelson County District Attorney Jack Browning. D.A. Browning assigned his longtime investigator Rick Poor to follow the case to conclusion. 
and they all agreed that they too had their doubts that Logan had committed suicide. I'm about to play a short clip of a phone conversation between Investigator Wilson and Rick Poor. The first voice you hear briefly is Investigator Wilson, and the second is then District Attorney Investigator Rick Poor. You talking about the medical examiner? Yeah, the medical examiner, Miss Thomas. So we'll see her face to face because I, I just won't have to get her sit down and look at these pictures with her and get her to explain to me how she can how how it can be uh, a suicide uh, because I just can't see it myself. So well, the the post mortem injuries on the back alone. You know, I mean, you, you and I, we both, I think, agree on that. I mean, that, it, well, there's no doubt, Lee. I mean, it is what it is, and I, that's why I said a, a phone conversation is not going to do it for me because that's what I left it at. The DA's investigator had sat down with Investigator Wilson as far back as January 6, 2021, and promised that certain investigative measures would be taken. Those promises were also made to Logan's father, Charlie not only by Investigator Poor, but also the current Harrelson County Sheriff. It's been two years, and those measures have not been completed. While I'm not going to get into the specifics of what those measures are to protect this investigation, what I can say is there is no planet on which it takes two years to complete these simple investigative measures especially considering the fact that Investigator Wilson has offered every step of the way to assist with what is needed. Why is this case stalling? Is it possible that undisclosed relationships with main players in this case are muddying the waters? Because what was also revealed through Investigator Wilson's review of this case was the fact that DA investigator Rick Poor and his wife knew CL's mother very well, something that no one revealed when investigator Poor was tasked by his boss, DA Browning, to investigate Logan's case. Unfortunately, CL's mother is now deceased, and it is reported that she took her own life. Was her case looked over thoroughly? Was there an investigation into her death? Does anyone else think her death is suspicious, especially on the heels of writing such an elaborate anti-suicide article? There damn well should have been an investigation and questions should have been asked. When private investigator Lee Wilson reached out to me almost a year ago and we first talked about Logan's case, I reviewed the case file and agreed to tell Logan's story. I went through the file pretty extensively back then but we agreed that the time just wasn't right. There was still hope that Harrelson County would do their job and complete this investigation, but they didn't, and so here we are. I had reviewed Logan's case before, but of course when it was decided it was time to tell his story, I went back through the case files again. As I was sitting at my desk reviewing Logan's case writing this final script, I went back through the crime scene photos for the 1100th time. Only this time, there was something front and center in a photograph that made me stop in my tracks and sent a chill up my spine. I had seen it a hundred times before, but this time, a light bulb went off. I couldn't believe I missed it. 
Due to the sensitive nature of this case, I can't tell you what it was, even though I wish I could. But I can say, someone may have unwittingly left something behind at the scene that could change everything. There really is no perfect crime. Of course, I immediately called Investigator Wilson and told him what I had found. He wasted no time in turning it over to Harrelson County investigators, and they promised yet again to complete the investigative measures they had been promising all along. These aren't special investigative measures either. This is something that should have been done with any unattended death. We're not looking for special treatment here, just a thorough investigation. It's beyond time to make that happen for Logan and Charlie. Charlie Willis is just a dad looking for answers. He wants to know the truth about what happened to his son. Due to the circumstances of Logan's case, he's not only lost him, but likely his daughter and other family members in the process. But he keeps going. Why? Because Logan is owed the truth. It's really that simple. I can't tell you step by step exactly what happened that night, but things sure don't seem to have happened the way they're being portrayed. And therein lies the problem. Logan Willis's death needs to be investigated completely and thoroughly, and Charlie Willis and Investigator Wilson won't stop until it is. That, I can assure you. I do want to say before we go that I reached out to Harrelson County Sheriff Stacy Williams for comment, but did not receive a call back prior to this recording. He did reach out to Charlie Willis and inquired about the podcast. But Sheriff, I left my number as well. Feel free to call anytime. You can bet your sweet ass I'll be following Logan's case closely, and I will bring you updates as they become available. Stay tuned to my social media for ways you can help. As always, you can find more information on this case on my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. I'll be bringing you an all new episode next Thursday. Make sure you hit that subscribe button if you haven't already so you don't miss it. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other. <laughs>